Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Art of War. War. Alright, welcome back everybody. I'm Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And we're going to be finalizing our story of Alexander the Great today. Yes. Ending his campaign. The end of Alexander the Great. The greatest of Alexanders. So let's let's, you know, reset up where we were for the people that maybe didn't hear last last week's podcast. So we're this is right after Alexander the Great has successfully defeated Darius, took him out. Now he controls the entirety of the Persian Empire. And he is pretty much as far east as any Macedonian Greek has ever been. Yeah, and it's um, you know, pretty pretty crazy. Also a little sad because we'll find out most of the Macedonians that are with Alexander and that compose his army never actually get to go back home to Macedonia or see their families again, which is quite sad, actually. Um, but yes, so Alexander the Great has conquered the Persian Empire, which was his goal when he set out from Macedonia. But for some reason, that doesn't seem to be enough for him. And he just kind of is has the conquest bug or something like that and he wants to continue conquesting but it's really kind of almost like a hollow shell of their previous conquest because there's no real purpose behind it besides alexander just wanting to wage war this is not a you know anything to do with vengeance against the persians he already won that so there's really nothing left for him but he still wants to conquer all these other unknown lands and we find out that a lot of uh, his allies and a lot of the Macedonians don't really agree with this because it's just a lot more war and they're pretty tired at this point. This, you know, this culminates as almost a decade of war for them to conquer the Persian Empire. And now they have to go on to fight even more. Yeah. And also he's, you know, he he stood behind the whole idea of retaking the Greece, the Greece lands, you know, Greek land to to get revengeance for the mistreatment of the, the Persians on, on the Greeks with Athens and all, all this stuff, right? So now he's completely, he has no, he has nothing to stand on. They, they have no reason to be there anymore. They, they've taken what they wanted. They conquered the known lands that they've, they've read about. They want to go home. They want to see their families, you know, but he, I guess it's, it might've been a combination of that's all he's ever known. You know, he did this when he was in his early twenties. So he hasn't really seen much of life outside of Macedonia. Now he's the most powerful person in the world. For him, it doesn't seem like, you know, when you're 28, 30 years old, you don't want to, you don't want to stop. You want to keep going. You know, you want to be even bigger. You want to be even greater. You want to solidify your name in history. And so I guess he just decides that he could keep going. I mean, the Persian empire is the strongest in the entire world. So what's stopping him from taking the entirety of the world, right? Mm -hmm. Like nobody's going to, going to, to even come close to Darius, Darius and all of his, his troops. So yeah, he wants to keep going. And, and that, that point that the Macedonians, they're not really about it. There's some discontents growing. That's, that's a, that's a key point later on. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because, you know, the Persian empire was his enemy for so long, but now that he's conquered it, he really starts to adopt a lot of Persian 
traditions and part of their culture and is really trying to be a Persian king. So he's starting to dress like Persian kings do and he's adopting customs in this court, like how you uh, address someone. He's using the ancient Persian way to do that. And so that also further alienates a lot of his Macedonian allies that they're kind of like, hey, I mean, you're, you're not a Persian, man. So what are we doing here? Yeah, and he also it also fits it fits well with the characteristics of Alexander the Great for him to start adapting to like Persian customs because Alexander the Great over the period of the very beginning when he's going into Thrace he starts developing an idea that he really is you know partly god he might be a demigod related to to, to the gods of of uh, Greek mythology mm-hmm. so being able to say that he's now you know the ruler of Persia the ruler of Greece all these places he's also a god king and that's that's very Persian like a god king you know and in an ultimate control and he uh yeah he's he starts becoming a persian more than he is a greek he he marries roxana to try to solidify his his hold on persia even more and make sure the satraps are loyal right. to him remind us again who roxana is oh yeah so roxana is she's just a um an aristocrat some a, a persian noble she's the daughter of a, a satrap that was under the control of bezus and What's interesting is that Alexander has married many other women prior to this, right. but Roxana seems to be like the one he really chooses to be his real wife. You know, he's got kind of like a whole harem of wives, but this is the one he wants as everyone to recognize as his real wife. He ends up mm. uh, having a kid with her, and that ends up being the potential heir to Macedonia later on. So yeah, he's he takes all these these uh, Persian traditions and he starts becoming Persian. He's very friendly with the satraps. And he he likes to he makes the the uh, the majority of Persian his like main his main stomping grounds like mm-hmm. Babylon and all those areas those are those are really where he he feels like he's at home now, right? Yeah, and so his Macedonian allies, some of them are not too happy about this, and supposedly there's actually a plot hatched to possibly kill or assassinate Alexander. And it was um, the ringleader was Demas, who was one of his um, companions, one of, you know, the cavalry riders that were really close to Alexander. So this plot is not really very well structured at all. It's just kind of it seems like Demas just kind of had this thought one day and was talking to people about maybe doing something, but nothing really got the ball rolling. But he did and he did tell some of the wrong people. And so... Um, it eventually came to Parmenian's son, Philotas, who was informed about the plot. But for some reason, Philotas didn't inform Alexander. And so the informer that originally told Philotas found another way to tell Alexander. And Alexander was rightfully pretty pissed off on, at this. And so Dimnus was exposed and he was arrested. Dimnus ended up taking his own life. And then Philotas pleaded not guilty to being part of the plot. But um, said that his his fate should be decided by the Macedonian court of law, and the court of law actually, you know, found him guilty in a sort of way, and so he was pretty brutally tortured and ended up confessing to the plot. You know, maybe that's just from whatever torture they inflicted on him. It might it might have been that he just actually didn't have anything to do with it. But also, this in this court, Parmenian who, you know, has been one of Alexander's closest allies ever since the start of the campaign, was also convicted as being part of the plot, but he wasn't present when his son died and when all of this was going down. He was actually, he was, Parmenian was the governor of Media, which is um, like in modern day Iran. So that's where he is right now. 
And so before the word of his son's conviction and death could reach Parminian, Alexander dispatched a unit on bracing camels to go assassinate Parminian. And so it's really kind of unfortunate that we have such a great general that meets his end in not a very heroic way. Yeah, he does. He's not even aware when he dies that he that the, any of this has happened. He doesn't know his son's dead. He doesn't know that he's being considered part of a plot to assassinate Alexander the Great. None of this comes to his attention. He's still just sitting on the flank at the city of Akbatana, uh, holding the treasury to and the flank to ensure that they have you know something to come back to after they they you know they do the business in the east. And they just he just he's gone like that that quick. He's just he's out of there. Yeah, it's pretty wild because. That really shows you that Alexander was, because it happened rather quickly too. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he just, you know, he it was months of mediating to figure out if if who was responsible. It was within days that he decided that Parmenian and his sons were guilty of these crimes. And then he, this friend that he's had for ten years, he kills without, you know, like a, a second thought. There's not even there's not even much detail saying that he was lamenting or he was sad about the decision. He just, I guess. I guess it was because he he must have become very por- paranoid at this point, and yeah. and believed that there was actually a risk to his life. Yeah. So he just discards this guy who's basically been his father mentor this entire time. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head. This is kind of marking when Alexander is becoming very paranoid, and when you see from here on out, um, he makes a lot of pretty rash decisions in this paranoia that some he later regrets. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Pretty, um, pretty sad, especially since, you know, Alexander would would never have been Alexander the Great without Parmenian, in my opinion, because without Parmenian support when he was taking over in Macedonia, he never would have garnered enough support or manpower to unite Macedonia and the parts of Greece and then march into the Persian Empire. So it's really just kind of an unfortunate end for um, what I think is one of the, the greatest heroes of this tale. For sure, and the the countless amounts of battles that he's extremely core to to winning and and uh, strategizing. But yeah, so uh, I forget. I don't know what his name exactly is, but it's I think it's Conius, Conus, something, Coenus. something along that. Coenus. Okay, he he takes over uh, in Parmenian's uh, stead for for battles. At least he's not you know he's not an advisor, but he's the one that that takes the the lead on the on the left flank in the coming the coming battles. And just throw another note in there, another key figure that's actually killed off the battlefield is Cletus the Black, who um, yes. was also a very prominent companion that saved Alexander's life in the Battle of Issus. Um, apparently, it was at a party, it's a kind of, you know, a Macedonian party, and they were both, uh, Cletus what? and Alexander were both very drunk, and people were kind of just like telling Alexander how great he was and how he was the greatest Macedonian leader, and Cletus was kind of like brooding in the corner and then he basically just had an outburst and said that Alexander was not that great, that his father Philip was a greater leader than he'd ever be. Um, and then in a drunken rage, Alexander actually ended up killing Cletus. Um, and this one, Alexander regrets pretty heavily. And um, he's pretty depressed about it. And even in the accounts, it says that he contemplates taking his own life. Which is weird because you'd think he would feel the same way about Parmenian. There's not really any accounts of that. But yeah, he's he's at this point now where he's he's kind of like a, a mad king. You know, he's just doing whatever he wants and making rash decisions because he once again he probably believes himself to be to be a god king, to be a, untouchable. But yeah, so after after all of these these important characters get 
removed from the story, he's still on his objective to move further east and conquer more and more lands. And so after about a year, a year and a half of uh, settling some discontentment in the in areas that the of Persia where some satraps aren't loyal, he he decides to finally move into what is modern day Pakistan, but at the time was called uh, Punjab. Yeah, the the Empire of Punjab. Yep. Um. So there's not really any major battles as he's doing his conquest of Punjab. It's actually. Uh, it's pretty strange, you know, Alexander has always been a little bit harsh towards some of the common folk that we saw at Tyr and some of the other instances, um, but it really just takes it to an, a next level as the Macedonians are charging through Punjab and it's a lot of mass genocides where they just pretty much destroy entire villages and kill every person there. Yeah, and there's multiple sieges prior to entering into Punjab where uh, he would hold you know defensive position around a city siege it for four to five days gain access to the city through some form of conflict and then he would brutally murder every single resident inside without any any form of mercy and then he would destroy the fortification he to just annihilate it to rubble and it was Mm -hmm. it's very it's very like you know there was no reason for him to do that because in most cases when he's taking these fortresses they don't have much they don't have much chance. He knew he was going to take it, but he decides to just eradicate them completely. It's pretty pretty wild. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was some kind of racism in his part, or maybe it was a tactic, like a fear tactic, because a lot of the the settlements ended up surrendering to him after that. Um, he when mm-hmm. he makes his way to Taxila, which was a pretty prominent empire in the Indus Valley, uh, they surrender outright to Alexander. They don't want to fight him at all. And they're the ones, um, the leaders in Texel are the ones that inform Alexander of King Porus, who um, has an empire across the river of Hydaspis. Yeah, that's a good point, because he really doesn't meet much resistance in Punjab itself after committing those those atrocities. And the only person that really puts up a, a fight is Porus. Porus is the only one that stands up and says that he's going to actually you know, resist Alexander and his, his push into Punjab. Yeah, and I maybe King Porus is more of a position to do so because of the way the land is for his empire and um, his his strengths and his army. Maybe he feels that he's a little bit better suited than some of these other places because between Alexander and King Porus's domain is the river Hydaspis, which is a a mile wide river that's very deep and very fast flowing. Um, and this was occurring right at the time of monsoons and the um, snow melts. So the river would be flowing even faster and be very dangerous. So Porus is under the impression that Alexander wouldn't want to risk crossing such a dangerous river. And he is hoping that Alexander would pretty much just give up his conquest of um, Punjab and India and then go back home to his empire. Yeah, and that's that's, you know, that's funny. Once again, it's an instance where some foreign ruler thinks that the Macedonians are are going to stop stop because of the mm-hmm. river you know the Euphrates and, and, and the the Tigris with with uh, Darius they they didn't believe that Alexander would make a crossing as soon as he did and they didn't believe that he would choose where he chose to cross and the same thing happens here where Alexander is there very quickly after he gets word that Porus is going to resist him and he's on the banks of the Hydaspis and uh Porus is encamped on the other side, preventing the one of the only locations you could really actually make a good crossing 
he's set up where they wouldn't be able to. And uh, he thinks, yeah, this is, I mean, we're just going to stop them here. They're not, you know, they're not, they're not going to cross us. They'd be crazy to try to cross us. And so, yeah, let's talk about Porus a little bit because yeah. in the accounts, they say that he was a seven foot tall giant pretty much and um, that he threw javelins with the force of catapults. Yeah, he seems like a pretty pretty strong fighter. He has the the numbers of his forces include, you know, war elephants again. Those numbers vary from 200 to up to 800 or something like that, war elephants. So um, we finally have war elephants coming into play oh, more so yeah. than they did at the Battle of Gagamela. Yeah. So it's going to be exciting. Uh, but yeah, so what what were the battle preparations for this Battle of Hydaspis? So they're encamped on the other side, and they think that, you know, there's no way that they're going to be crossing. And Alexander, he comes up with an idea uh, that he's going to try to locate another crossing, another area that he can get his troops over uh, the Hydaspis without uh, Porus gaining wind of it. Because if they gain wind of it at any point, they can just go meet him at the banks. It's a mile wide, like you said. It would take mm-hmm. him a while to cross and also they would just be completely obliterated when they made made landfall. So Alexander, under the cover of night, he sends out little detachments to go locate a suitable area to cross. And he finds one, and he has one of his generals, uh, Craterus, uh, stay at the original encampment and constantly make it look to Porus like they're going to maybe maybe make a crossing there. Like, maybe the, the Macedonians are going to come over, you know, have some some boats, maybe have some lights on the embankments. Look like this, the force is still there. And all the while, Alexander and the rest of his army are going to that cross, that that uh, that potential point where they can cross the Hydaspis. And this is like, you know, 30 of the 40,000 troops, maybe even 35 out of the 40,000 mm-hmm. troops. And they make the crossing. But Porus, just like Darius in the first first instance of when they were crossing the Euphrates and Tigris, they kind of, they think maybe there's something amiss. Like maybe they got like a sixth sense and uh, Porus says, okay, I'm just going to ensure that there's not somebody, you know, they're not, they're not making some little, some little trick on me. So he sends out his son named Porus also, they call him young Porus to go investigate, to see if there's possibly um, a crossing happening. And Porus actually comes on to, the young Macedonians, Porus. young Porus, sorry, yeah. young <laughs> Porus actually comes on to uh, them making the crossing, and he only has a detachment of about two thousand cavalry. But I guess maybe he wanted to make a name for himself, or he thought that the best decision was to immediately attack to try to stop them from crossing, and that was a very poor decision because they had already a large amount of forces already made it to landfall, so they were set up, and he just runs straight into into the Macedonians, gets routed, he dies, a small group of those 2,000 cavalry survive and they return to Porus and they inform him that Alexander's actually made the crossing over the river. Right. And a pretty important part um, in the accounts is that Alexander was able to do this in part because of a strong thunderstorm that was happening when he was crossing. So it kind of was able to cover uh, his army's crossing and he they actually carried boats that they had used to cross the Indus River, like the <laughs> hundreds of miles to cross this river. And that was um, Coenus who who led the ships. And so he they also had forces that were carrying these boats all the way across the uh, plains to come to, to cross at this river. And um, yeah, the storm's pretty important because Alexander later gives praise to, um, is it Zeus? Yeah, gives praise to Zeus for 
uh, creating the storm that let him be able to cross. And so, you know, like I said, the, the horse gets wind of what's happening. So he's able to uh, set up his troops in a defensive formation, knowing that a battle's coming. They're all woken. They're not, they're not, you know, they're rested. They're, they're ready for battle and they're able to point themselves in the correct direction, get in formation. And then Alexander shows up and, and meets them in the, it's, it's like 12 or, or one o'clock in the afternoon, whenever the actual two forces come into sight of each other. And so I guess we should, we should break down how Porus's army is set up. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Porus, obviously he has the war elephants, which are, he regards as his, you know, biggest strength. He rides one himself. And so the war elephants are comprising the front line and there's, you know, 200 or so of them. And then the left and right flanks um, were the cavalry and they were screened by the six man chariots that Porus had. So this is kind of crazy to think about a six man chariot, you know, it's pretty, pretty big, right? It would have two shield men. It has two archers and then two drivers. Um, So this would have been a pretty effective force, but because of the heavy rains that were happening, Prior to this battle, the chariots are actually pretty useless because they couldn't really maneuver in the muddy battlefield. Because mm-hmm. they, you know, a chariot it, it only goes in the direction that the wheels are faced. They can't make rash movements to the left or right. They have to loop around. So they're they're pretty ineffective if they're not mobile. And in this instance, they're not very mobile at all. But another interesting fact that I think we should include that I found extremely interesting when I was uh, researching this is that. The elephants themselves were heavily, heavily armored. They were covered in multiple inch thick armor plates all over them. And here's the real cool thing is that, you know, all of the war elephants, of course, were male because they needed mm-hmm. their tusks. And the tusks were covered in, in steel. They were, they were a, a very, like, sharp pointed steel. Um, like barbs or? Yeah, steel barbs. They were, they were covered in, in steel barbs to make use of the tusk as much as possible and then on top of the elephants sat these things called howdahs and they're Mm. basically just a little basket that sits on top of the elephant where the archers and javelin throwers would sit and so these elephants were they were like tanks they they were covered in armor to the point where you know a typical spear an arrow you know uh, any weapon really didn't make much impact. So these were like, these are formidable foes, especially for a fighting force that used primarily spears. And, and, and part of the reasoning for putting them on the front line, they are so heavily armored, but horses are actually pretty naturally scared of war elephants, unless they're heavily trained to not be scared of elephants. And so putting these elephants in front, um, Porus has the idea that it would limit Alexander's ability to use his very effective cavalry. And, you know, in the past battles, Alexander's cavalry has pretty much been the force that's won the battles. Yeah, his companion cavalry makes pretty much all of the, the strategic plays in, in all of the battles. That's the most important unit he has at his disposal. And, oh, also, another another point. Sorry, i got to go back to the War Elephants. I think the War Elephants are just so cool. Porus, <laughs> he, he is mounted... He's mounted on his own war elephant in the same manner as the other ones, but he has no basket. He has no howda. He's just by himself on top of an elephant, this seven foot tall dude. He himself is covered in chainmail, heavily armored, sitting on top of an elephant. That's got to be pretty scary looking. He's got a spear and a, and a, a javelin himself. Just imagine some seven foot t- tall dudes sitting on top of a giant armored elephant with barbed tusks. Yeah, that's definitely a really fearsome picture. And that's why I wish there was more contemporary accounts 
besides the Macedonian count? Because I, I mean, Porus just seems like a pretty, pretty intense badass. He does. He does. He, even to the end, he, he makes himself seem like a badass. But yeah, so so then the the the, the center is comprised of the elephants that are that are se- uh, separated about fifty feet apart from each other, and then there's very light infantry, like you kind of see with the Persians. They're they're armed with with small shields and uh, and spears, and the the two outside flanks are only cavalry. So and then the Macedonians, they're the same as they always are with phalanx and uh, in the center yeah. and the cavalry companion cavalry on alexander on the right flank and yeah cohen is leading the um the cavalry that permanian would traditionally lead but mm-hmm. um also i mean actually side note cohen is his Parmenian's son-in-law so just throw that yeah. in there so we still got a little bit of Parmenian living on in this battle um but the macedonians alexander also has you know been able to amass more soldiers from his new vast empire and he's trained non-Macedonians in the Macedonian fighting style, which you know further angered some of the Macedonian veterans. Um, but you know, useful just to have more fighters. And he also has employed the um, Scythian archers. Um, Scythian is the terms that the Macedonians use. They're also the archers of Dahai, and they're like a nomadic people that have pretty much mastered horseback archery. And so they're going to be pretty effective in this battle. In um, attacking the war elephants, as we'll see. Yeah. So, so Alexander he starts off the battle with actually these archers. He usually would uh, deploy his companion cavalry as the the main strategic decision to start the battle off. But in this instance, he wants to take advantage of them, and he sends the the Scythian archers down the center of the battlefield to pelt and cause as much you know chaos and and hurt as much of the the center as he possibly can. Maybe do some damage to the, to the elephants. And that kind of instigates the battle. There, something has to be done. You can't just have these horse archers pelting your, your troops. So, you know, Alexander, he sends the, the archers. But then, you know, he gets a little bit itchy, too. He, he probably should have waited for the uh, Porus to engage. But, you know, he sends his companion cavalry and he attacks the left flank of Porus. And uh, he's just obliterating the, these these cavalry. Because unlike the Persians, uh, the Porus's Punjabi... Uh, cavalry they're not as strong not as well trained they're not as heavily armored right so these companion cavalry that have been at this for years they're just slaughtering this left flank and poor sees that he makes a very poor decision to send the majority of his right flank to assist his left flank which is the chariots and the cavalry and they Mm -hmm. they loop around and they join in the battle against the companion cavalry but yeah so this gives a pretty big opportunity for cohenus to attack the right flank with his cavalry unit and it actually he encircles pretty much the entirety of porus's army and that spells a pretty big disaster for porus um but you know porus still has his war elephants and so he sends them against the macedonian phallax in the center and the way that the macedonian phallax responds to the war elephants is they start to retreat slowly from the war elephants without breaking formation um, I think to pretty much just keep the elephants occupied while the Scythian archers fire on the elephants. And um, eventually after a lot of spear throws and <laughs> um, arrows that hit the elephants, some of them finally fall and die and some of them actually begin to rout. And we know the biggest downside of elephants is when they rout. Yeah, they go ballistic and they start trampling their own their own units. But also another interesting point uh, is that 
Alexander was actually aware that there was going to be war elephants, so he equipped the phalanx with even longer Cerithians, Cerithian uh, mm-hmm. spears that usually they're, you know, they're like 20, 20 feet long. They're very long. He made them even longer because, you know, he, you don't want to be close to a war elephant whenever <laughs> whenever they're covered in, in steel barbs. So, but that's that's pretty ineffective. They It doesn't really do much because they can't really injure the elephant. So, yeah, it's the it's mainly the, the archers that that caused the most havoc for the war elephants. But this is one of the instances of the most Macedonian deaths in an actual battle as the, the war elephants actually cause a lot of, a lot of problems for the center. Unlike in other battles where the center just holds its own pretty much. And they don't take that many losses, but they actually take like a thousand, 2000 casualties just from these war elephants in the, in the center. Yeah. And finally we have war elephants on the battlefield. Yeah. And they're effective until they're not. And so they're, they are, they ended up routing. And so then they turn and actually run into Porus's own troops, which is pretty, pretty bad. And it leads to a lot of deaths on Porus's side. And then finally, you know, Porus is in this situation where he's surrounded on all sides. And then the rest of the Macedonian army is crossing the river at this time, too, led by Craterus. So it's just all around. He's surrounded. He doesn't really have a way out. But um, Porus is is not going to surrender, is he? No, he he just he keeps fighting on top of his, his war elephant that hasn't routed either. He's just refusing, even though his troops are running into just absolute death. They're routing and they're running in a, in a Craterus and they're getting just slaughtered because he's on, behind them. They crossed from the original point. So they're at the original encampment of Porus. And they're just, you know, they're slowly moving in towards the center. And they have no hope. They're just completely dead. And they're all wanting to surrender. But, but Porus, nah, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to give up. Yeah. I just have, like, such a keen picture of just this seven-foot-tall giant on top of this even more giant, more elephant. Yeah. And he's just, like, throwing spears. And he's just covered in arrows. Yeah, and they're, they're all, you know, he's surrounded by thousands of, of cavalry and troops. And he's just screaming and poking his spear at people's javelin. Yeah, that's yeah. probably what it was is very much like. And, uh, you know, he eventually, he doesn't surrender. He eventually gets uh, demounted and captured. Yeah, he doesn't surrender. He just can't fight anymore. Yeah, yeah, so... He uh, gets taken into the hands of Alexander, which saves the large portion of Porus's troops that were going to be definitely slaughtered if he didn't surrender. He actually, uh, Alexander shows some mercy and he lets the majority of the troops go uh, and he doesn't kill them, which is surprising. I don't know why that is. He's, he's, right, since he's just kind of gone on a genocide yeah. prior to this. But uh, yeah, maybe he was impressed by Porus, you know? Yeah. Well, he definitely was. That, yeah. Yeah, that was a big part of it. And we, I mean, we see, right, because Porus, Alexander asks him how he wants to be treated. Porus replies as a king. So Alexander makes him the satrap of his current territory, plus all the extra territories that Alexander had already cra- captured on the other side of the river. Yeah, it's so it's for all the way to the Indus River, which is really funny. You think that if you lost the battle, you wouldn't get rewarded. But uh, Porus gets rewarded with, you know, like five times the empire he controlled prior <laughs> yeah which is really funny because taxilla the leaders in taxilla told alexander about porus because they were yeah. enemies and so now porus has a larger empire and so taxilla is probably just like um okay yeah like what the hell alexander but yeah that's uh 
that's uh, that's what happens with Alexander. He makes very interesting, just bizarre decisions some of the times. But yeah, he's very, I guess, impressed by uh, Porus refusing to surrender. Maybe his grandeur and size, the legendariness of him. He's actually uh, claimed to have been in Punjabi uh, mythical culture related to a Hindu god. So he himself is also viewed somewhat as a god. So maybe Alexander sees a little bit of himself in Porus and chooses to be a little, you know, a little, little bit more kind to Porus. Yeah. I mean, if, if anyone was a god king, it would have been Porus. Yeah, big old seven foot tall. But yeah, so that's that's pretty much the farthest that Alexander the Great gets. That's the last battle, the last major battle that he has. Mm-hmm. And that's about the the farthest east his his conquest goes right and it's not you know up it's not his decision ultimately right he still sets his size sights on uh, marching east he hears tell of the kingdom of magadha which is in the ganges river delta another and the ganges river is even larger and more difficult to cross than the hydaspis um and tells he hears tells of this super large army in the kingdom of magadha which has thousands of war elephants and thousands of cavalry. And he actually, you know, goes to Porus and asks if these tales are true and Porus confirms them. Um, so, I mean, I feel like Alexander would be pretty excited to take on a battle like that, but um, yeah. it finally becomes the breaking point for his Macedonian troops. Yeah. They're, they're like about to cross a small river and, they decide that, you know what, we're not going to do this because they're getting wind of those stories themselves. They've been at it for so long. They already prior really wanted to go home. They have no reason to be in this area. They don't even know where they are. You know, like this isn't on, on Greek maps. And uh, they mutiny. They just say, no, we're done. And they, they choose not to march anymore. And Alexander, you know, he doesn't really have much control over his army if the army doesn't want to march. So right. he agrees to... He begrudgingly agrees to return. But it's it's very important, too, that he frames his return in a way um, saying that the gods uh, stated that they wanted him to return. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't his men. It was the gods gave him signs to return. Yes. So that was really important to him because, you know, he is a god in his mind. And so he can't really just be easily swayed by just his men. Yeah. Oh, and here's an interesting thing. This might this is kind of going off on tangent, but I think it's I think it's important to the overall story, especially the way you like to set up lore and and uh, you know like very interesting mystical situations. Uh, well, after taking the majority of Punjab and their return back to Babylon, they pick up this guy named Calanus, who's in his seventies. He's a very old man, and mm-hmm. he's regarded as a uh, kind of like a monk. He's he's a a prophet. He's he's all kinds of things. They they had a term for it, but I can't remember what it was called. And he is traveling with them as an advisor. He's close to uh, Alexander, and he gets he gets super fatigued, very weakened, and he's not able to like move his limbs as as well as he he could before. And he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to live disabled, so he chooses to kill himself, which it's just kind of weird. This whole, this whole little story just springs up out of nowhere. They only knew each other for a very long, a little period of time. So he chooses, he wants to kill himself, and he chooses to kill himself by self-immolation. And Alexander doesn't want it to happen, but he agrees to let it occur. They set up a bonfire for him to burn at, and he, as he's burning himself, he says to Alexander, We will meet in Babylon 
That's the last thing he says. We will meet in Babylon as he dies. And that ends up being like a big part of the story of Alexander because he doesn't know what that means, but it turns out to have some pretty interesting results. Yeah, and we also see it with the um, Chaldeans, the Babylon, Babylonian astronomers, right? The um, writers of the astron- astronomical diaries um, who predicted the fall of Darius and everything like that. They actually um, predict the in- impending doom of Alexander if he returns to Babylon and they tell him to avoid Babylon. Yeah, but he chooses to go back anyway because, you know, he doesn't really, he doesn't put these two things together. He just wants to, he just wants to conquer the world. Yeah, initially he he does he does heed their advice because of what happened to Darius, um, but then he gets convinced that it's um, kind of a bunch of hoo ha and goes back to Babylon. Prior to this, though, we do have another pretty significant death that also wages a heavy toll on Alexander. His best friend Hephaestion dies from falling ill, some kind of poisoning or something as they were having a celebration as well. And this one really hit Alexander pretty hard. This was his closest friend throughout all of it. Um, You know, some say they were even lovers and that kind of stuff. But um, so this death really affects Alexander as well. Yeah. So he's kind of, you know, he's, he's conquered the world, but he's also in a very, probably a very sad state. You know, he's seeing all of his friends die off. He's lamenting over their deaths and now he's getting all these prophecies that are telling him not to return back to Babylon. There's all this bad, bad news in the future, all these omens. But he goes there anyway. He chooses to, to return. And so he a, a tradition for him is, you know, the celebration of Heracles. That's, you know, a big tradition for Macedonians, celebration of one of the greatest heroes and, you know, considered a very divine person in their history. And so the celebration usually entails a lot of drinking and um, Alexander, you know, falls ill during the celebration, possibly due to poisoning or something along those lines. Yeah, there's there's very, very many accounts. It's still a mystery to this day. There's not really much uh, information on it. There's only a few accounts from uh, Plutarch mm-hmm. and, and the other historians of the period that all basically they say the same kind of thing that he was he had a fever or he was bedridden for about 10 to 14 days he couldn't speak at the end of his life but they all say uh, different reasons for that Uh, Plutarch claims that he couldn't talk at the end of it and it was because he had been drinking for several days and that was the reason he died whilst Arian and Diodorus say that he didn't have a fever ever, and it was because he drank a very large vat of unmixed wine. Mm-hmm. In both instances, they claim that it lasts a long time, and also that it was the result of alcohol. But modern day interpretations think it's it's probably like typhoid fever, meningitis, all, all kinds of things it could have been. But there's also the claims that it was also an assassination. Yeah, and it's uh, unfortunate too because I mean, well. The week that he died, it was very cloudy because we see in the astronomical diaries, they, you know, write down the observation each day. And it's just like, today was cloudy. The king has died. That's that's the entry for the day that Alexander died. So there's not really, they can't see the significant um, star maps or any significant astronomical events uh, coinciding with his death, which is a little unfortunate if there was something that would be kind of cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, so ends Alexander the Great. So let's take a, you know, just a brief recap 
of what everything that happened. So Alexander became king of Macedonia in 336 BCE at the age of 20 after his father, Philip, was assassinated. Mm -hmm. He then goes on a unification campaign in Greece and Macedonia and consolidates his forces to move into Asia Minor to seek revenge on the Persians. And then he, he defeats King Darius at Gagamela, and King Darius is, is killed later on, and he becomes the Persian king. And so that's around, you know, 330 BCE. And then he begins his campaign into the Punjabi and into India at 326 BCE at the age of 30. And he finally dies, it's estimated, at 323 BCE. So he's about the age of 33. And in comparison, his father, King Philip, was assassinated at the age of 46. So Alexander, you know, dies relatively pretty young. Yeah, but it, it goes it goes along with the, the, you know, who Alexander was. He was very quick moving. Like the whole the whole conquering of the entire world happened in in realistic ten years. Mm -hmm. He conquered the entire world in ten years, which is absurd when you think about it because it's not like the modern day where you can travel quickly, you can get resources quickly. There's all these outlets for, for things to be done efficiently and, and fast. He was doing all of these logistical nightmares perfectly and efficiently where he was able to conquer hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of square miles of land right. in the stint of 10 years. It's just wild. Without ever losing a battle, really. Well, yeah, without, and he had a very... Even in this battle that we just talked about, he was not, his numbers were not favorable. He was always outnumbered, but he would succeed in every single one of the battles. It's it's wild. And I mean, it, it's befitting that he dies at such a young age because who knows what would have happened if he lived 40 to 50. He might have might have taken the whole world and we might all be Macedonians. Who knows? And I think it, it's very much in line with who he wanted to be, right? His idols being Achilles and um hercules you know these great heroic fighters that um and and cyrus the great we love cyrus the great yeah and cyrus the great these great heroic fighters who had these long list of amazing accomplishments but um, not very long lives mm, true yes i mean the, the whole image of him even you see in, in all of the busts that are done of him and sculptures it's always of, of youth you know the young alexander because that's what he was he was a young ruler that died young and conquer the world young. And when we when we talk about conquering the world, right, the known world at the time, right, they're from they're expanding from Greece, yes. and we're going all the way to Pakistan and India, and then also in Egypt. Yeah. So it's it's a very large empire, one of the largest it's ever been, and for them it was the world, it was everything, you know. Yeah. And it's it's a pretty wild story. It was fun to cover. It is. And uh, yeah, so he also doesn't designate an heir, right? True. So that leads to a bunch of power struggles in the um, years to come. So there's a ton of, of wars going on to see who's going to really fill in this power vacuum that was left by Alexander. Um, and also, unfortunately, Macedonia was never able to reach this greatness again because Alexander's campaign pretty much stripped it of its army and all of its economic resources. <laughs> so Macedonia pretty much comes out with the short stick throughout this whole campaign. But it does have profound impacts on the rest of the world. 
like uh, just Egypt, for instance, uh, from the period of Alexander taking over Egypt and Gaza and that whole area of the world, it becomes ruled by by Greeks, no more, no more Egyptians. It was a complete transition of power, and it's called the Ptolemy transition. Mm-hmm. They're all called Ptolemies, not they're not pharaohs anymore. They're Ptolemies, and they actually start a thing called the uh, cult of Alexander, where they believe that the Ptolemies were themselves related to the gods and alexander himself is deified to be a god and they start viewing their their uh their leaders their new greek leaders also like gods which is similar to pharaohs they also viewed pharaohs as gods but these new greek leaders are deified and it becomes up until uh, cleopatra with caesar and everything uh there's there's still the ptolemies it lasts for a very long time yeah so he has profound impact on the whole yeah. world it's unfortunate that macedonia feels the, the negative end of it, but he, he really changes how, how things function. Yep. And I just want to insert a brief story, right? We heard about Alexander the Great, but there's also another side to him, and it's Alexander the Accursed. Um, so he, for some reason, you know, he always had sort of a reverberation for other religions, but he really waged a very genocidal campaign against Zoroastrianism, which was an ancient Iranian religion. And they referred to him as Alex- the Accursed, which is basically a demon, because Alexander killed pretty much most of the Zoroastrian priests and destroyed all their temples and their sacred texts. Um, so it's kind of weird how he was very brutal to certain people. Yeah, and it's probably something we'll never know their full reason for why, but that is that is very synonymous with, with Alexander, how he just, some people he treats well, and he doesn't really have any reprisals against, and then others will just uh, commit atrocities against out of nowhere for no real apparent reason. Yep. But yeah. So he's got he's got two different sides of him. He, he you know to us he's immortalized in history as one of the greatest conquerors, one of the best strategists. You know all these these great titles. But to at that point, you know a lot of people weren't in favor of Alexander. He wasn't as highly viewed and touted as as he is now. Yeah. And, okay, yeah, one final thing. I got to do my rating. So the oh, yes. rating for this battle today, um, we're going to we're gonna do it on the war elephants, right? Yeah, that's the, the most interesting. The way these war elephants were armored and the, the effectiveness of them against the Macedonian force was just yes. pretty crazy. I mean, if, if they hadn't relinquished the right flank, and they had been able to hold the center, right? And maybe Alexander broke the left flank, but maybe they could have done something about that with the elephants. Who knows? But if they had continued combat in the center, it could have been completely differently because those elephants, they were they were formidable. Yeah, so if the elephants had like support from, from the flanks and stuff like that, it could have been an entirely different battle. But the war elephants, you know, their effectiveness was very good at the start, not so much at the end. Um, so... They're probably going to get the rank of some crispy bacon because I honestly, there's just wild learning about them. I mean, I, I you know, Porus probably could have won if there was two Porus's. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But also, also, I got to ask, is crispy bacon superior to chewy bacon? Which which one's higher up on the ranking, chewy or crispy? Man, I would probably say crispy bacon's a little higher for me. See, in my personal opinion, I'd have to say that chewy bacon is above crispy bacon. So I would give it I would give it a chewy. Okay. All right. 
Either way, they're bacon. Those are our ratings. They're bacon. Yeah, for sure. That's that's the, the more interesting part of the battle. But yeah, so that ends our coverage of Alexander the Great's campaign. We will pick up with a whole new series of wars for you guys. Um, I think we're going to start with the Ottoman-Hungarian Wars. So a lot of interesting figures in there, right? We have Vlad the Impaler. Yep. We got a bunch of other wild stories of peasant revolts and and uh, rebellions that occur during that period and weaken the empire. Really interesting stuff yeah. we're going to be talking about. The, the medieval times is just like hundreds of years of wars. It's... Yeah. I mean, it, we could we could go on for years and years if we just chose to go over French and English hostilities. But <laughs> we're trying to pick out the the real interesting you know stuff that maybe not a lot of people have heard about during the medieval period yep but yeah thanks for listening guys and yeah yeah it was fun covering alexander the great so tune in next week hi listeners we hope you're enjoying the podcast and if you are make sure to follow us on all of our social medias you can find our social medias in the description on our spotify page if you enjoyed what you heard make sure to check out our sister podcast gray skies Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history, and hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that. 